0: I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. The idea at the heart of the Voice of Insurance is to give everyone access to the most senior and influential leaders in the industry. I want to democratise the sorts of insights that until recently were only available to the privileged few. Today is one of those days when that mission is properly fulfilled – Because my guest is a very strong leader at one of the London market's best success stories of the last 30 years, and someone who has almost always been in the room when the key decisions affecting the market have been taken over that period. Bronick Mazayada is smart and direct, and as Chief Executive of Hiscox, has built that business into a high-quality insurance franchise with global reach. Now he has stepped down from that major chief executive role, this interview reflects on what has driven and what continues to drive him, and examines some of the pivotal moments in the past decades in which he has played a leading role. But we don't dwell on the past for long, and using his position as Chair of London Market Electronic Placing Platform PPL, we focus on his vision for a digitally native global market, the challenges of market modernisation, and the skills that the top underwriters of the future will need. We also get a feel for what sort of roles might appeal to one of the London market's stars in the future. But more importantly, by listening in today, you'll get a great feel for what sort of person and what kind of leader Bronick is, and get the
1: benefit of all his hard-earned experience. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day. Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today.
0: Bronick, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. It's
2: good to see you, Mark.
0: You've had a glittering insurance career. Do you have any unfulfilled ambitions left in the sector?
2: Yes, inevitably there are. The number one thing that I have a focus on is obviously PPL and making the London market go digital. This is the third time in my career I've been involved in trying to make the London market go digital. And this has been by far the most successful, but we're not there yet. PPL is trying to, will be launching its next-gen platform this year. And clearly, my motivation is to work with the team, work with the market to get that delivered. And I think that's really a great ambition to have because it will make the market better. And I've always taken the view, if you're running a business in the market, is that if the market gets better, the business that you are then working within can do even better than the market. And the great thing about going digital for me is that it opens up the world from London to the whole of the world. And the only thing that's gonna hold you back is your own ingenuity and determination. So for me, success would be PPL, Next Gen gets launched this year, there's great take-up, and I'm sure that by the end of the year, PPL will have come up with a plan beyond Next Gen, and I'm sure that'll be pretty exciting. When was that first attempt? The first attempt was back in 1994. Was that EPS? EPS, exactly. I do remember, yes. I had just joined Hiscox then and EPS had got going and obviously we were very keen on that and then that died a death. The second time was when I was Deputy Chairman of Lloyds and we had what started off as Project Blue Mountain and then became Connect and we spent the short end of £75 million and we had nothing to show for it. So this time, third time lucky, we are making great progress. To me... One of the challenges is that, way back even in EPS and Connect, we are trying to define what are the core data records that we need on a slip, and we are only now at the end of my sort of active business career getting to have that defined, in an effective way, because it turns out that everyone has a different view of what the core data record should be, and that shows how hard it is. It's not like buying or selling a shares. You know, the shares and hizkoks are defined. All that matters is how many and what price and what the settlement terms are. We all know how insurance wordings, people play around with terms, dates, excess points, coverages. So it is a more complicated thing to do. So do you think we just underestimated how hard it was or was there something else at play? I think the challenge is getting people to agree. Even on the core data record, the challenge is if we said what are the critical 50 data points we need to have, we'd probably end up with 100 because each of us have a different view on what's the most important. Are
0: does that really matter though?
2: No, everything's digital. Does it? It does because a million, if you want. You? Yes, but if you want to have accuracy, people they need to mean premium. the same things when they say premium. If you take a very simple thing, in Britain and Europe we do dates, day month year, and in America they say month day year. Absolutely. Okay, mm-hmm. think of the problems that can cause. 10th, 6th, 2022, is That's the 10th of June or the 6th of October? These things do matter, and getting that precision at the micro level is a real challenge. So I think, I mean, I'm not doing any of the hard work. Other people are doing it, but just overseeing that process and then trying to deliver that electronically is, to me, a job worth doing.
0: You say you're not doing the hard work, but is the hard work really the cultural side of it, the banging heads together? And you said at the beginning, the great thing about digital is that it connects you to, you know, you could be directly talking to a retail broker in Chile or something, for example, fantastic. But there are lots of EC3 wholesale London brokers who probably don't really like the sound of that. Has that been one
2: of the major reasons why it had been put in cold storage so many times? No, I think that comes down not to the system, but how you use it. There are EC3 wholesalers There's also EC3 MGAs who are dealing around the world today. If you take CFC, they're an EC3 MGA dealing with brokers all over the world, and everyone regards that as okay. Why is it just that managing agents, when a managing agent does that, all the wholesale brokers come and say, no, no, you can't do that. You've got to stay at the box at Lloyd's. That's part of the technology creates opportunity It's up to individual firms to decide how they use that technology to address which opportunity. So do you think anyone should be able to get a PPL licence if they want to, obviously, as long as they're a qualified insurance broker? Yeah, that's the way it works today. Anyone who is either a member of LIBA, the IUA or the LMA is eligible to become a participant on PPL. Then should it be anyone who is a recognised insurance practitioner anywhere in the world? Yes, we do have some brokers who have come to us to said, can we become members of PPL. And we've had discussions and we're absolutely open for that. Yeah. is it been
0: that some of the wholesale because have been paranoid for no you know, it's not really the case? Because they add the value. Because of course, you could directly connect with Santiago. But then if you don't have Spanish wordings, and you don't have an understanding of Chilean law, no local taxes, it's probably a nightmare to deal with it. You might as well go through the wholesale channel anyway.
2: Exactly. So I'm not pointing stones at anyone. It's just in terms of people doing it. I mean, remember, PPL is a market initiative the brokers have a critical role to play they've been big drivers in terms of doing that this is about our own inability between the brokers between the underwriters to agree on what the core data records will be we already have just remember over one hundred eighty-five thousand contracts through ppl last year it's working but we've effectively taken a paper-based system and made it electronic now we need to take the electronic system and make it digital It'll only happen, and the market is cooperating, but it's getting everyone to agree is a painstaking process. And we're nearly there. Well, the CDR is out for consultation, and that's being driven by Lloyds and by John Neal. We're doing a good job at that. And I'm hoping that, I think, by the end of Q1, we'll have a defined core data record. What sort of percentage of everything is that going to capture? And there's always going to be the 1% that won't fit. Mark, I have no idea. But it's going to be a lot more than we have today. You know, if we've got zero agreed data fields and we get 20, that's a huge step forward. So everyone, again, that's you falling into the normal London market trap, which is, well, we can't be perfect, so we won't do anything. (laughs) Okay, whereas my view is, can we just have 20 agreed fields and then we'll do it the old way for the other 60 or 80 rather than trying to argue about what the perfect 60 are? And so to me, this is an incremental process. We all tend to forget... I'll show my age, is that how technology has evolved incrementally, we just think of it as a whiz-bang all in one go. But, you know, if you just take things like connectivity, do you remember Telex?
0: Yes, I do, I do. Do you yes. remember a
2: fax machine? And the fax machine was such a vast improvement. And then from the fax machine, we went up to dial-up
0: internet. Oh, yeah, the boingy-boingy the noise. That's right,
2: the little <laughs> dial-up noise. And then from there, we went to copper. In fact, walking across the bridge this morning, with somebody who lives in my village he asked do i have fiber at home and i said well no we have fiber to the cabinet and that's great because it gives me 25 megabits of connectivity he said well down my road we've got fiber to the house and i'm getting 250. Yeah, yeah i mean that all has happened over 30 years so to my mind in terms of going digital incremental improvements is what it's all about let's rather do a 10 percent improvement well, think how we've got PPL up. Because it's never going to end, is it? It's never going to end. This is a forever task. If we improve 10% a quarter or 10% a year even, over time we'll change the world. Everyone wants a overnight success, but that never happens. So this
0: is all about efficiency, productivity and improving the reach and potential distribution of the London market? That's correct. And at the expense, I presume as well. I want to ask you about the expense ratio. Once we've done all this and everything's digital and there's no friction – or very little frictional, friction. little, little bits for the little frictional yeah. bits, obviously, and well, part of what we do is frictional yeah. stuff. What do you think would be the hardest bits to eliminate from that expense ratio? I mean, other than people's salaries. Well, there you are. <laughs> you just summed it up for me.
2: I mean, the thing you have to remember is somebody once said to me, what you have to remember, Bronick, is every inefficiency is somebody's personal top line. So that's what makes it hard, is that ultimately it is about roles disappearing because they've been made digital. So, and that's hard. But yeah. that's, again, the reason why I think it's up to individual firms to drive, not some market-wide diktat. Presumably,
0: whenever you remove expense somewhere, then, of course, that creates more profit and more... You're still going to have
2: to pay it all back in salaries anyway, aren't you, at some point? No, I think if you eliminate expense, what it means is lower prices to the customer. And ultimately, that's a good thing, because the competition between firms ensures that... Over time, most efficiency gains end up in the hands of the consumer. And that's the way it works in every sector in the world. And that people will be able to buy more insurance. Yes.
0: And more and interesting products, more more responsive products and that have better exactly. budget because they're not wasting it all on commission.
2: That's correct. Or it's not just commission, it's also underwriters have expenses too. And I'm not going to point it's all about commission, it's all about underwriter expenses, it's all about Lloyd's levies. Everybody has a part to play in reducing the cost to the customer.
0: What do you think the prize is then, when, say, this next gen really kicks off and you get to a high percentage of everything being done fully digitally, much more efficiently digitally, the native digital version, rather than this sort of hybrid that we've got at the moment. What do you think the prize is, do you think? The prize is a bigger cake for everyone to scrap over if we have more if we have a
2: 60 billion london market now yeah. could it easily be 120 do you think or everyone the could world. be twice as productive the world is growing the world is getting a bigger place and i think the efficiency gains are huge and i think you talked about independent brokers what you have to realize is we have some large global insurance brokers and it's much having a london market desk in a new york office as having that London market desk in a London office. And I think it, it allows Lloyds in London to extend its reach. It allows the global brokers to become more efficient. They will no doubt create hubs around the world which are London market specialists as they are today. I think it's all about growing the cake. And then it'll be up to market forces as to how the cake is distributed. Do you have a vision
0: of what trading in the global insurance market, this digital insurance market, this digital specialty syndicated market will be like in 20 years' time?
2: I think that, as always in life, in the insurance market, we think we are unique and can't learn from anyone else. The place we have to look at is what's happened in other financial markets, and what I see happening in our specialist market is lower value transactions being more automated than they are today. And fully digitized and the more complex deals being negotiated face to face as they are today but the transaction itself taking place digitally and so I think it'll be completely different and just the same at the same time you know just like driving a car is completely different in November last year I participated with a friend in the London to Brighton veteran car run guess what we got to Brighton in a car it just took us six hours to get there. (laughs) And, you know, it was pretty hard changing the gears going up and down the hill. And then I got there and I drove back home in under an hour. So it's just the same, but completely different. And that's what I think will happen as the world goes digital. Our London market today is, you know, we have a lot of inefficiency around small risks. Those will be automated, but the complex things will still happen face to face because they may happen virtually on Zoom and Teams and all these other devices, but they will not happen automatically because you don't negotiate with a computer, but the data is pretty defined. And
0: you sort of Darwinian about it, you don't have a set vision, you're aiming towards, you can let the market decide what it wants to do and how to do it.
2: The market is way more sensible in aggregate than any person individually. And if I look back at my time at Hiscox, we were trying to figure out where are the forces in the industry forcing us to go, far more than trying to define what those forces should be. I'll give an example. We at Hiscox, one of the things the London market has done is develop a flood product which competes with the National Flood Insurance Programme. Why were we able to do that? Because Congress changed the rules. That had nothing to do with anyone in London. What has been different, and again it comes down to technology, is the creation of automated rating systems with huge amounts of data controlled out of London, communicating via APIs to cover holders' offices in America with real-time quoting. So, you know, somebody in an office in Louisiana gets a quote, it's priced in London instantaneously, goes back to them and they have a bindable quote. And somebody in London, there's not a person doing the quote, there's an algorithm, but there's somebody maintaining the algorithm. And then there's somebody worrying about the aggregates by zone. And guess what? When the river stops flooding, we stop quoting. So there's all sorts of control and data benefits and that's growing the London pie. We still do that. In fact, even though the transaction, the individual transactions are done automatically and digitally, we still have a wholesale broker in that chain who's helped structure the deal we put together. So we're separating the intellectual part, structuring the deal from the operational part, which is doing $500 quotes. And that's a pretty big and fast-growing business. And that's what I vision of the future, which is people seem to Does that to mean that the underwriter of the
0: future is going to be something more different? Do you sort of think of this sort of Blofeld character stroking a cat and tweaking <laughs> little... Tweaking dials and dialing up price in Louisiana and then dialing it down in
2: Mississippi because of aggregation questions yeah. or whatever? But we're doing that already, you know, because effectively we're all managing aggregates by zone for wind and flood and quake today. Again, that's why I say it's exactly the same, but it's just done in a different way. When I joined Hiscox, I remember in terms of risk information, you were lucky if you got told which county property exposure was. Then you got asked, well, how much of it is within, you know, a mile of the coast? And the broker would say, you know, they would say, well, 10 or 15%. Nowadays, somebody said to me, you can see how many tacks are on per square foot on the roof. There's almost an explosion of data, but the basic thing of managing aggregates is the same. And so that's how I see digital as allowing the market participants to reshape the way they interact. But the core capability of intellectual capital, risk management, pricing will be the same core skills you need today.
0: So it's going to be the same but different. You've hired and managed loads of really, really, really good underwriters who have put Piscox in top quartile, year in, year out, made lots of money so, for not, you. you know. Not every year. Not okay. every year. That's also in the nature of the game, but say above average yeah. performance, uh, yeah. well above average performance over a very long period. So there's going to be something evergreen about these underwriters. They're still going to have to be thinking the same way in the future, even though they might be doing it in a slightly different way. So what are those attributes? You've had to distill and study these. You know, you sit and make the decision about whether this underwriter is better than that underwriter, which one should be promoted.
2: Well, fortunately, I don't make that decision. (laughs) I have colleagues who make that decision, who are themselves. Well, so you get
0: the management information, surely. Do you have any insight into it? What are the evergreen
2: characteristics of an underwriter? I mean, I think the evergreen characteristics are you have to be curious about the world. You have to be analytic about the world. And you have to have good people interaction skills. And why do you have to be curious? Because the world keeps on changing. You know, if I put a completely different slice on it, there was a period of time when the UK insurance market, there's a whole spate of water losses. Nobody knows why, but it was a common across the industry. So you need to be curious what's going on? How do we manage that? How do you manage our exposure to that? You need to be analytical to look at the data and let the data inform you. And you have to be able to get on with people because it still remains a, trans- a business where you're negotiating with other people. Those are the evergreen parts of it.
0: So you think that personal side is never going to end? that those personal relationships are still going to be important.
2: Do you think the world is never going to be dependent on personal relationships?
0: No, I absolutely do. Yes, of course.
2: I agree. Why would it ever be any different? I mean, does it matter? Yes, of course. Knowing people, you know, if trust gets developed between individuals. And trust is the key point? Trust, knowledge, experience, it comes down to how do you have a good relationship, a trusted relationship with with someone.
0: Do you think there'll be any skills that people don't have now that they will need?
2: Yes, there are tons and tons of technical skills. I mean, how do you use an API? How do you develop an API? The tools you use to analyze data. Those technical skills are changing and developing all the time. I learned programming languages 30, 40 years ago when I was at university. They're completely different now. They're much easier to use, so you've got to keep on... Your technical skills have to keep on being reinventing them and staying current. Dealing with people, as I think, will be the same in 100 years' time in terms of where it is today.
0: I suppose you'll have to know what questions to ask, and that probably won't change.
2: What's the (laughs) aggregation? What's the frequency? What's the severity? What's the legal trends? What's societal expectations? Those questions will keep on changing.
0: The business has changed in many other ways. Obviously, the structure of the business is always changing. These days, I'm spending a lot of time interviewing businesses that are quite capital-light, compared to Hiscox with a traditional big balance sheet. If you were starting a business today, would you go down that capital light road? Why
2: are these capital light businesses around? Effectively, regulators have driven the creation of those capital light businesses. And if you're talking on the whole, the capital light businesses are more lightly regulated than the capital heavy ones. So that what MGAs are in this regulatory grey area, in theory, if you're a carrier... And you have it granted delegated authority to a managing general agent, you are responsible for their compliance with all the conduct rules, all the many different conduct rules, all the risk management rules that. Because they're your agent. Because they're your agent. Everyone acknowledges that there's a fundamental conflict between being somebody's regulator and trying to develop an advantageous commercial relationship with them. That's why that's where the most innovation has been, because that's been the lightest regulated part of our industry. And it's not just unique to the UK. You could say the same again. is true in America when you look there. So to me, that's where the most innovation has happened most easily. But would you? Would you go for it that way? The answer is I'm not going to be doing that, Mark. So, I'm going to <laughs> the question. so it's one of those well, things. do you
0: think there's something, obviously, it's, it's more of a pain to have your own balance sheet, but then it's yours, isn't it? It's your money, if you have it, if you have the cash available to invest when everyone else is running scared and you can make those decisions then there's nothing quite like that
2: exactly so there's pros and cons of everything but the, the reality is, is innovation happens in unregulated spaces because it's actually much harder to innovate in a regulated space than in an unregulated space because there's so many more hurdles you have to satisfy in order to get there
0: another thing that's changed a lot in your time in the london market obviously we had reconstruction renewal which you were part of but then After that, we had all these integrated Lloyds vehicles, probably at the peak, they were probably 15, 20. It used to be a lot busier for a London-based financial journalist having to cover all the results of those businesses. But they all consolidated away. Do you think that that continued consolidation in the specialty insurance market is inevitable? Or do you think there's always going to be
2: regeneration? Again, I think the best way to answer that question is not to look at the London market. But to look at the investment banking or the fund management business, where you've seen the same pattern again, which is consolidation, big getting bigger, and then people breaking off to form specialist-focused businesses. And so do I think that'll happen in the insurance business? Yes, I do. But it comes back to the conversation we just had around the regulation. That's the big barrier to overcome. It's possible to do that. You know, Stephen Catlin tells a great story of, how he started his business way back when with a guarantee based on his family home. Don't think you can do that anymore. Capital barriers to entry have gone up. And that's true whether you're in the unregulated space or the regulated space. But do I think there will be a regeneration? Yes, there will. But there is no place for a midsize generalist, broker, investment manager, insurance company. You need to be able to be specialist in some way in order to be attractive to your customers i mean i guess the way we've all thought about it is if hiscocks didn't exist what would the customers miss and that's really what you have to think about is do you have expertise in defined areas where you make a difference and if the answer to that is yes then there's a role you can play if the answer is you're just doing a me too well then you're going to struggle probably had even bigger consolidation on the distribution side you of have, our business
0: yes. And obviously, we've had the failure of the Aon-Willis merger. Do you think that signifies a high watermark? Do you think we've probably got about as far as we can get? Or do you think they'll find another way of consolidating? I don't know
2: the answer to that question. It was always clear from the outside looking in on the Aon-Willis that there were areas where the market dominance was such that they would never be allowed to consolidate. Reinsurance was clearly in our market in an obvious area. Another area which people, is also in the pension advisory business, which had been subject to a monopolies investigation even prior to JLT being bought by um, Marsh and bringing that together with Mercer. So that sort of shows you that maybe if those had been dealt with right in the beginning, that merger might have gone ahead. So, you know, I'm not an investment banker. And so you could see ways of doing it. But do I think within that, there would be regeneration. Yes, it seems to me that that's inevitability. We were mentioning before about trust and
0: we've had COVID's been a massive issue for the insurance industry. but it's been an issue for all sectors sure. of the economy mm-hmm. and government. Do you think we've come out of this with our reputation
2: and our public trust in us enhanced or diminished? I mean, I think there's clearly are the challenges around that and having participated in the test case in order to provide clarity of the wordings. You know, that clearly was, everyone would far prefer the industry to have said, yes, it's covered no matter what. And the reality is you can't do that. And so I think it comes back to the, one of the challenges of in insurance is effectively it is a legal contract. And people by their nature don't read the details of the, of the contract. And that's always a gap between what people think they should are covered for, what they expect to be covered for, and what they are covered for. And so I think, yes, the industry has definitely been bruised. But I think what people underestimate is at the same time, the industry has, across the world, has paid out billions and billions of dollars for people where they had covered claims. If you think about all the event cancellation business, which had explicit coverage for pandemics, all of those got settled pretty rapidly without any qualms whatsoever. I guess if you went and asked Wimbledon, do they think that their insurance policy responded, they would probably say yes. You know, they've gone on record saying they got a pretty large insurance claim. So they would have one perspective. If you have some of the firms in the, involved in the test case, they may say no. But on average, it hasn't been the best experience for the industry. Was it
0: just too big to say, you know, ex gratia payments, that kind of thing? Because I think in the travel sector, there
2: probably work quite a lot of ex gratia sort of payments. I think the challenge, well, we'll see now in terms of some of the sums at risk at the moment. I think there is all the interlocking legal contracts and clarity is required in order to make sure all the legal contracts work together.
0: So do you think the lesson is communication with communication, communication to the client, to
2: remind them exactly what they're buying, what they're not buying? But
0: do you think sometimes it's just too much, I suppose?
2: I think the challenge always in insurance is being clear. And the challenge is this balance between absolute clarity, but the document being so long that people will never read it anyway, and not. And and then the other thing that is always the case is that Mother Nature and the world has a habit of throwing up things that nobody has ever anticipated on a scale that it has anticipated. I think there's always, I think, should be a drive for clearer wordings, simpler wordings, clarity of coverage, and that should be a never-ending task. But the world does change, and therefore things have to change with it. So you think you should have someone sitting around saying, what if, what if, what if, what if, to every wording? You certainly should have that, absolutely. My challenge is that I'm prepared to bet that even in the what if <laughs> they'd drive you crazy. That they, they. <laughs> they won't dream up everything that could happen. Because the what ifs, would we two years ago have anticipated we would have been locked down at home and willingly done it for going on two years now with fits and starts? I don't think anyone would have predicted that three years ago. That's true. That was probably the biggest unknown yeah. uh, the and the biggest so, surprise. Yes, the unknown unknowns are always the hard things to do.
0: You mentioned before your introduction to the London market was when involvement in reconstruction renewal. It was before that, it was wasn't it? It was
2: before that. I was, um, it sort of goes back quite a way.
0: You were at McKinsey,
2: weren't you? I was at McKinsey, but actually goes back even before that. When I was at university at Oxford, I had to, doing a master's in management studies, I had to do a finance thesis. And at the time, my father was considering becoming a name at Lloyd's, and I came down from Oxford to meet him. And that was in 1985. And I ended up doing my thesis on participation in the lawyers insurance market as an investment. At the time, I remember interviewing people who said to me, no, what you have to understand is I know you come from South Africa, so you wouldn't understand. But but participation in lawyers is something one does. It's not an investment. Anyway, I didn't see it quite like that. Anyway, my dad didn't become a name, which given it was the late 80s. Well, it, was it, was a good a good, it was a good call. was a good call. And then in 1991, when the um, Rowland Task Force was formed, McKinsey were hired. And um, they came to see what was then known as the planning department at Lloyd's. And they said, how do you know whether this has ever been a good idea or not? And the planning department at Lloyd's said, well, Martin Mitchell, who was running it then, said, "Um, well, the last time we, we heard, the world expert in that worked for McKinsey in Sydney. And so I got asked if I'd advise the team from Sydney. Then I offered to come to London. And I worked on the Rowland Task Force. And through that met Robert Hiscox and um, worked very closely with Robert. And then um, went away, as always, quite often with consulting projects. Not much happened in 1992 after the Rowland Task Force reported. In 1993, David Rowland became chairman, Robert Hiscox became one of the two deputy chairmen, and they invited McKinsey back to do what was the first Lloyd's business plan. And again, I was on that team, and um, at the end of that Robert asked me can you teach or can you do (laughs) and effectively offered me the job of managing director of the Hiscox group which effectively is the job that I then had for the next 28 years the title changed, but you know I was reported to the chairman Robert was a great boss and then when he retired I then went to another Robert Rob Childs and he's been a great boss too
0: Obviously, having been involved personally in all that reconstruction and renewal project, and all the drama of that time, do you think there's often the thesis going around, obviously, the world has changed and London has changed. It's so much more international. and But then it was very UK-centric. The capital was UK-centric. And these days, it's global. It's, all, it's from everywhere and very less UK-centric. People have said, well, if there's a similar crisis in the future, then people won't rally around in the same way because their interests won't be
2: aligned in the same way. Do you share that view? I mean, I think the assumption in that question is that people's interests were aligned back in during (laughs) R&R. People's interests were definitely not aligned during R&R. You had some individual names who had paid all their losses. You had other individual names who were suing their agents. There were court cases all over the world. It was a hugely fractious time. And the genius of David Rowland, Robert Hiscox, Ron Sandler and others was to be able to bring all of those people together to the benefit of every, everyone. So again, it's one of these things, would it be very different if it happened again? Yes, of course it would be, but it would be the same. There would have to be leaders emerge who are able to bring all the disparate groups together and persuade them whatever course of action was for the common good. In exactly where we started off this conversation around going digital. Ultimately, there are, will be firms that will benefit from the digital move, there'll be those who won't. But ultimately the challenge in getting change happen, which you know, John Neal is trying to drive through, is getting all these groups together to work for something which is in the common good, in the belief that if the cake is bigger for everyone, everyone will have a chance to prosper. And perhaps on that it was still global then because it was still key what
0: you'd said about Hiscox about saying what would people miss if it wasn't there? That obviously it was very important that the New York insurance superintendent yeah. believed that Lloyd's was better to be there than not there because it seemed that, certainly having read some of the books, sure. that decision was really, really important because it could have said no and that would have been the end of it.
2: Exactly. So these global relationships, coming back to another thing we talked about is the importance of a people business. Those relationships matter. They mattered then. They mattered after 9-11, you know, when again there were rule changes made in order to make sure that the insurance market kept working And that was down to, you know, different sets, Sax riley Nick Petchon, Julian James and others, you know, Andrew Moss, all working their relationships to deal with a different set of challenges. So to me, you know, the world's different. The best way to not have to worry about that questions is to make sure there isn't a crisis in the first place. Quite right. But I think the continual development of personal relationships, even in a digital world, is critical.
0: And are you optimistic about the future for Lloyds, for example, in terms of its global competitive position, in terms of its relevance globally in, say, 15, 20 years' time? Are you optimistic?
2: I am optimistic. I think, you know, it's got to keep on working and evolving. It's one of the innovations which came actually, thanks really to Sax Riley and Nick Pratchett, was the sort of creation of the Franchise Performance Board. I always regret at the time that it focused just on underwriting and not on operations. And in fact, the decision by Inga Beale and the council to make the use of digital trading platforms mandatory was one of the few occasions when Lloyd's has actually stepped down and said, this is why you have to process something. It's quite ironic, really. We think we see ourselves as underwriters, but except in the London market and Lloyd's market, regulation of our underwriting activities by Lloyd's. But it's taken another 20 years to get to the same position on operations, which you would have thought was actually... Everyone should be doing things the same way. And so I do think I am optimistic, but I think the evolution is important. I think, the, as you allude to it, the changing nature of the investors in Lloyd's needs to be managed going forward. But again, the fact that investors from around the world have wanted to invest in London and the Lloyd's market tells you that they regard it as really central to the global insurance industry. So I am very much a half-glass full person about the sort of internationalization of ownership it tells you that it matters and people not just in london think it matters because they're selling out big checks to invest in london what keeps you motivated is it do you just enjoy the job or the challenge of keeping on top no i think the i always have looked at things where you can have a positive impact and the challenge of having that positive impact when robert huscox hired me he said um You know, before I retire, I want Hiscox to be top 10 in the UK and before I die, the top 10 in the world. At the time, I laughed at him, but we achieved that. The top 10 in the UK before Robert retired as chairman. And so I do think that having a positive impact and making a difference is what motivates me. Like most people in insurance, I didn't set out to be in insurance, but having got involved in it, it is provide a fantastic social good and then the challenge of building a good business is one that never ends. Same as our PPL, it's about having a positive impact on the London market so that it can evolve and change going forward. And that challenge with a positive, not just for yourself, but broader within the community in which you're operating is what I find motivating. And what advice would you give to your younger self now with the benefit of hindsight? The same advice that was given to me just after I joined Hiscox, which was... There are those that dream and those that do. Happy are those who dream, then do. (laughs) And, you know, that's the best I can say. In terms of specifics, well, that's always changing. But this combination of dreaming or ambition but execution is, I think, probably in everything. If you want to make an impact, those are the two things you need to have.
0: And also from what you said about PPL, it's that not trying to be
2: perfect. least get eight out of the 10 really important things out of the way and get them done. I'm an engineer. And in fact, at one of the (laughs) meetings, Rob Child sort of pulled my leg about being an engineer, which is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Because the world's always changing. And if you can get, as I said, just think about how we got PPL uptake. We didn't say you have to do 100% overnight. We said we're going to increase the target by 10% per quarter. And everyone told us that that would take way too long. Okay. Two years later, we're at 80%. What people forget is that the London market was processing, 80% of its slips digitally pre-pandemic. That's what everyone thinks, of the pandemic made us change. No, no, we made ourselves change thanks to a little bit of a whip cracking by Lloyd's. And so to me, the sort of make progress is really, really important. Always have an ambition to be perfect, but it's better to make progress than to worry around that it's not quite perfect yet.
0: Your unfulfilled ambition was to really make the
2: PPL motor, get to near 100% or whatever it is, make it the the definition of success. It's to get it to go from being electronic to being digital, and that means more digital data for us all. And then any other plans or any other sort of aspirations, ambitions, things that
0: you might do, or is it you're just leaving it all tantalisingly open at the moment? At
2: the moment, I'm open. I mean, I was already doing PPL before I retired as CEO of Hiscox, and I'm in that wonderful phase right now of... People still interested in me. That's very flattering. But not having to commit to anything. And so I don't have any, I've got to go and do this or that or the next thing. But I'm looking for things where I can have a positive impact. I mean, I've become chair of something called the East End Community Foundation, which is a charity that focuses on Newham, Tower Hamlets, Hackney and the City of London. And effectively, it answers the question I had as a CEO, which is those four boroughs are amongst the most underprivileged in the UK within two miles of where we're sitting now. But as CEO of Hiscox, I said, we'd like to get involved in the local community, but who and how and who are the good ones and who are the impactful ones? Well, the EECF has its own endowment and then raises money from corporates like Hiscox and others and helps channel them into local community groups. There are 5,000 local community groups in those four boroughs, 5,000. Okay, so which will have the biggest impact on addressing the social challenges of those areas. So we have a focus on helping young people into employment, digital isolation, and elderly isolation. And so can that make an impact? Yes. So I've taken that on because I can say, yes, with my knowledge of people with money, all the businesses in the square mile, can I help answer a question that every CEO of those businesses is trying to grapple with? Yes, because I can introduce them to the ECF. And the ECF have a great team led by a lady called Tracey Walsh, who's been in the business for a long time, who knows what the community needs are. You know, I'm almost acting like a broker. So you can um, make a difference. And then, of course, they can come get jobs
0: in the insurance sector and they can can walk to work as well. Exactly.
2: I mean, that's and it's helping people, all of those things, talent, local talent, social mobility. The insurance industry's got a fabulous record of actually local people coming and starting businesses and building them up fantastically and I think EECF can help make that happen. Do you think you'll end up with a portfolio of non-executive directorships like so many do? I haven't worked that out yet Mark. Do you think you'd be a good Ned? I doubt that I'd be a very good Ned. I think I'd be a pretty good chairman. (laughs) (laughs) That's why when EECF asked me to be a chair I said yes because I enjoy building businesses and building a charity is very similar to building a business but with a full-time chief executive, in the same way that when Robert hired me at Hiscox, there's Robert and I, and we had a single office here in London. By the time you know I stepped down, I wasn't a CEO, I was the CEO of a group, but the UK had a great CEO, Europe has a great CEO, London market has a great CEO, reinsurance has a great CEO, as has our US business. They were the people building the business. In a way, at the group, I was trying to coordinate things and make sure they had the right resources. And that's what I really enjoy, is working with people to have an impact. And the, with the charity, Tracy's a fantastic CEO, and I can work with her to get more resources for the charity to have an impact. That's what I'd like doing, and that's what I'd want to do. Do you
0: think you'll still have some connection to the insurance industry? It seems to be hard to get away from it anyway,
2: so... Well, I'm carrying on PPL for a while. It's still a while. And after that, post that, you just simply got no plans. Mark, I haven't answered that question. So much as you'd like me to be specific, I can't.
0: Well, Bronick, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Good it's to always, chat. It's, well, it's good. To, when you get up in the morning, you know you're going to have to interview Bronick Mazayardi. I, 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 I better do my homework. So uh, hopefully I've done okay. You've done very well. You've done very well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bronick. Always good. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www
1: thevoiceofinsurance.com.